ask you to take your Bibles and turn, please, to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9. And we're going to talk this morning about the conscience. And is your conscience clean? Is your conscience clean? On this day in America, we honor the soldiers who have died to give us freedom. But all around this nation, millions of people have gathered to honor the Savior who has given us life. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations. And there are a couple of words that I want you to underline as you kind of go through this. The first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. But there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which there were a lampstand, the table, and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies. Having a golden altar of incense and the ark of covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which there was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and four, and then underline this next little sentence, the sins of the people committed in ignorance. There's a, that's a key phrase that we'll look at in just a moment. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. Verse 9, three or four little words, which is a symbol. The outer was a symbol, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. You'll underline, cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations, there's that word again, it was used in verse 1, for the body imposed until a time of reformation. He says there's a difference between regulations and reformation verse 11 underline verse 11 but when christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is to say not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more, that's a good phrase to underline, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience. Underline those three words. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now let's talk about defining the conscience. Defining the conscience. Everyone in this room has a conscience. Someone has defined it 
as that still small voice that makes you feel even smaller. One little boy says, your conscience is your mommy telling you you better not do that, but she's not in the room. It's just that omnipresent mom thing. One little six-year-old said, I'm not sure what the conscience is, but I think it's when I feel bad for kicking my sister. We, we talk about the conscience, but there are two key verses here that I want to lift out of this passage, verse 9 and verse 14. Verse 9 summarizes the description of the worship in the Old Testament. And notice that it says, it cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. The radical defect of the Levitical system was not that it was the wrong system, it was that it had the inability to deal with the inner man, to deal with our conscience, to deal with what was on the inside of us. Now in verse 14, he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit, the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? Now verse 9 tells us that there was a picture of what would become a reality. Verse 9 was the picture. Verse 14 is the reality. The picture, the image, the symbols were there to show us what was yet to come to show the people of God that there was going to be one who sacrificed himself to cleanse them from their sins. In verse 9, it tells us that this system could not do what was needed. It only showed us what was needed. In verse 14, he tells us that it is able to cleanse your conscience. Now, we hear a lot about the conscience. We hear phrases like, the conscience demands it or a guilty conscience, or a seared conscience, or let your conscience be your guide. But the original word comes from the Latin. Two words meaning knowing together. Knowing together. The word conscience meaning knowing together originated in the schools of law. And it was a word to use when knowing together two witnesses came together one would be called into the court of law and would give their testimony about what events they had seen another one would be called into the court of law and give their testimony about events that they had seen when the two witnesses agreed as to what they had seen they were said to have had a conscience that they were knowing together that they agreed together on something A.W. Tozer says, Conscience is the inner voice that keeps speaking within our beings, and it deserves something better than wisecracks and humor. We talk, about, we talk about God consciousness, that we become conscious of the presence of God. There are times when you'll leave a worship experience and you'll say, I just sense the presence of God. You're saying, I was conscious of the presence of God. There's a time when we see ourselves in the presence of God as sinners. And like the sinner in the Scripture, we say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. We are self-conscious of our sin and that sin hindering us in our relationship with our God. And so when we talk about this word conscience, we need to see that it has a function. It has a function. And there are three or four or five, however many we get to, uh, that I want to give you. Number one, everyone has one. Everyone has one. Turn to Romans, the book of Romans. Hold your place in Hebrews and turn to Romans chapter 2. Now, Paul was contrasting 
the Jews and the Gentiles in this passage about the law, that the Gentiles were not given the law, but the Jews were given the law. And yet the Gentiles knew in their heart and in their conscience that there had to be a law. There had to be right and wrong. There had to be something that would motivate them and lead them to seek for solutions and answers. Romans chapter 2 and verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, he's implying there the conscience. Our conscience tells us this is the right thing to do. Do instinctively the things of the law. These not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. What does the next phrase say? Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. What Paul is saying is whether these people had the law or not, they knew inside of them that something might be wrong or that something seemed to be right. Their conscience. Someone has said that the conscience is that inner voice that warns us somebody might be looking. Everybody has one. Secondly, it is God-given to help us distinguish right from wrong. It is God-given to help us distinguish right from wrong. Or another thing, another way to say it, it is that judgment over our will that is within us. It acts as a judge over our will. Now, here's the problem. Although it's given to us to distinguish right from wrong, it's not infallible. It's not infallible. Your conscience being your guide can lead you down the wrong road because it is how you were trained and how you were taught and how you were raised that determines whether your conscience is leading you in the right way or not. We live in a world and in a postmodern society where people think that relative thinking is real, that there are no rights and wrongs. It's whatever you feel is right or wrong or whatever was true at the moment or seemed proper at the moment, but no cut and dried black and white, right and wrong. And with this kind of relative thinking, more and more people are going to commit acts of sin and crime and things that are unthinkable to many of us, and their conscience will never bother them. Why? Because they've never been raised in an environment of right and wrong. They've never been raised and taught that there is good and evil, right and wrong. Everything is what is right to you. And until a society understands that the conscience is not infallible, it will not always tell you what's right. It will not always tell you what's wrong. It depends on the training that that person has received. That's why we're to train our children the way we are. That's why you don't let relative thinkers tell your kids that's the way it is. That's why there is black and white and right and wrong because only with that mindset do you begin to understand that there are red flags that go off. I shouldn't be doing this. Notice a quote by Ray Stedman. There's a very common myth that says that conscience is the means by which we tell what is right and what is wrong. The conscience is never that. It is training that tells us what is right or wrong. But when we know what is right or wrong, it is our conscience. Now, here's how he defines it. It is our conscience that insists that we do what we think is right and avoid what we think is wrong. Number three, not only can it, is it given to us to distinguish right from wrong and it is not infallible, but thirdly, it can be manipulated 
by environment, by peer pressure, by circumstances, or a longing to feel loved. People can deaden their conscience trying to feel that they justify something that they're doing. Well, I, I don't have a conviction about that. Uh, I mean, I hear people say, well, I, I don't have a conviction about You know, I, I don't have a conviction about, about that particular social issue. Uh, I don't have a, a, a conviction about that area of my life. Well, guess what? What they're saying is their conscience has been manipulated. Now, you can lie to yourself long enough that you believe you're telling the truth. And you can manipulate your conscience. A person can steal from their employer long enough that they begin to justify it and say, well, I'm not making as much money as I should, so I deserve this. Manipulate it. You can be manipulated by peer pressure, by people telling you if you want to be accepted, if you want to be loved, if you want to be valued, you need to fall into this category. You need to do these things. You can be manipulated by circumstances. It, the conscience can be twisted and turned in a lot of ways. That's why Paul continually talks about, and the Scripture talks about, renewing our mind. The battle is in the mind, and the conscience is that area where we make our choices. Number four, your conscience can be tainted by sin. Turn to 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4. Now, if Paul can say this, then you and I need to say this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Very important verse for us to understand. Because how many of you have ever heard somebody use this phrase? Well, God is my witness. But God is my witness. Now, you be careful what you call God to witness to. You know, if I'm lying, I'm dying. Boy, I tell you what, if God took everybody serious that said that, there'd be funerals on every corner every day. I'm lying, I'm dying. You better be careful. Your conscience can be tainted by sin. 1 Corinthians 4.4 4. I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet, I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Paul says, as far as I can tell, I'm clean before God. As far as I know, I'm clean before God. As far as I know, I've dealt with sin in my life, and I'm walking in victory, but, but I can't stand here and tell you I know everything. The Lord is the one who has to examine me. Be careful about going out there and being haughty about your relationship with Christ. Remember, you may think you're clean, but you may not have submitted your conscience to the Lord, and there may be an area of your life tainted and blinded and stained by sin. Now, two, three of the ways that this can happen, you, you, you're not the final judge. And so that means a couple of things. First of all, don't justify what God condemns. Don't ever justify what God condemns. If God says it's sin, don't you try to say something else. And don't take Scripture out of context or try to argue out of your biblical ignorance and say, well, I believe it's this way. It doesn't matter what you believe. It matters what the Word says. What you believe is irrelevant. If you don't believe what God believes and what God says, what you believe is wrong. Now, the other way that this can get tainted by sin is that you can be cleansed and forgiven in an area and the enemy, as the accuser of the brethren, will come to you over and over and over again and bring that area up to you. He may use your mother. He may use your mother-in-law. He may use a friend. He may use an old acquaintance but he will continue to bring up something that God has already put under his blood. And just as the conscience is tainted by sin that we can sin, 
and think we're not and justify ourselves. It's also true that you can have cleansing and forgiveness before God and not realize it because you're listening to the voice of others instead of putting your mind under the authority of the Word of God. And I meet people and I know people and you know people that are walking around carrying the baggage of old sin and old problems and old habits long ago confessed to God, still carrying it around like a weight around their neck because they won't believe what God says that when I take your sin, I cast it into a sea of forgetfulness and remember it no more. And so they carry baggage. And they're ineffective for the gospel because they're believing what their conscience is telling them rather than believing what God says to them. John Stott says that there is a false guilt feeling bad about evil we have not done. There is also a false innocence which is feeling good about evil we have done. Number five, it can be deadened. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2 talks about the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. I want you to listen to this quote by Lindsay Stewart. Lindsay Stewart says, When a man won't listen to his conscience, it's because he doesn't want the advice from total strangers. When a man won't listen to his conscience, it's because he doesn't want the advice of total strangers. Now, the conscience can be dead. Let me illustrate that for you. Uh, one of the things that we support over and above our tithes and offerings to this church is American Leprosy Mission. And if you've ever read about lepers, the island where my dad was stationed during the war is now a leper colony. The island of Tinian was the largest Air Force base in the history of the United States in the Pacific Ocean, used for bombing Japan in that, those last few months of, of the war. And it is now a leper colony filled with people who have leprosy. If a leper were to walk into this room and you were head of a board filled with nails sticking straight up, four-inch nails sticking straight up, that leper could step on that nail and keep walking and never know he stepped on it. He could reach down and put his hand on an iron that was set on the hottest level and put it right there and hold it there and never feel it. Why? Because leprosy deadens the nerves. And a person who has leprosy in their extremities where the leprosy affects them, that leprosy deadens everything and they have no feeling. They have no sense of pain. They don't know what hot, what cold, what pain, what any... You could cut their foot off. They would never know it because they're deadened. The Scripture says that you can have a deadened conscience. You can so harden yourself against God, which is what Pharaoh did, so harden yourself against God that you cannot even listen and be sensitive to God when he tries to speak to you. So, can a man have a clear conscience? When a person has a clear conscience, three things happen. Let's just look at these very quickly. Can a man have a clear conscience? Can you have your conscience clear and clean today? I would submit to you the answer is yes. Number one, when you have a clear conscience, there is a peace within there's a peace within. Secondly, you live in harmony with others because the Scripture says you can't be right with God and hate your brother. So if you're having a hard time in your relationship with God, one of the places you ought to look is at your relationship with other people because if your relationship with other people is blocked, then your relationship with God is blocked. The two work together. They cross. They cannot be separated from one another. And you can pray all you want and read your Bible and witness. 
but you will not have a sense of peace within if you don't have harmony with others. And the third thing is this, they have been reconciled to God and know it. Reconciled to God and know it. Now here was the problem with the old system. They were trying to deal with their sins with external ritual and with rites and with systems and with traditions. Now let me ask you to just look over to chapter 10, and I want to read this out of the Living Bible because I want you to, to hear it, but I want you to follow along in chapter 10 where he talks about Christ being the ultimate sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10. The old system in the law of Moses was only a shadow of the things to come, not the reality of the good things Christ has done for us. The sacrifices under the old system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But just the opposite happened. Those yearly sacrifices reminded them of their sins year after year. What did it do? It was accusing their conscience. It was telling them, you're not there yet. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, verse 9. Then he added, look, I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to establish the second. And what God wants is for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Verse 14, for by that one offering he perfected forever all those whom he is making holy. You cannot solve internal unrest with external rituals. You cannot solve internal unrest with external rituals. Now notice they had rituals, but they didn't have reality. These were God-ordained things. There was nothing wrong with this. It just was pointing beyond it. They had the symbols, but they didn't have the substance. They were getting dressed up and going to church and doing all the things they were supposed to do and offering the sacrifices, watching the high priest once a year when he went in and went, boy, that got us by for this year. Wonder what we got to do next year. Same old thing. Got to keep doing the same rituals over and over and over again. And so what the Hebrews were doing when he, when he writes this letter to them is they were thinking if we could go back to that old system, we'd feel good about ourselves. You know, it's hard to deliver people from legalism. It's hard to deliver, deliver people from ritual and get them into a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. One of the worst things that can happen to a new Christian is to meet a legalistic Christian that says it's a list of do's and don'ts and rituals and regulations and it's not about a relationship. Forget your relationship, just come and do. But the scripture says to be and then to do. You will never do enough to become. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. Being leads to doing. And you can't substitute forms for the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. External religion does not solve our inner problem. Our problem is sin. Our problem is a guilty conscience. And these believers thought that, and they said, well, you know, the only way I'm going to silence my nagging conscience is to go out here and do more for God. And the writer of Hebrews says, that's not it at all. 
That's not it at all. He, in fact, he's talking here in verse 7 about specifically sins of omission, good things that haven't been done. He says you, you, you can't do enough, and if you miss, you can't make up for it. There's not enough good works that you can do to feel clean before God. You see, activity is not it. And we've got churches built on activity. You know, you can be as busy as a one-armed paper hanger in a windstorm, but that doesn't mean you're spiritual. Being busy in church can't cleanse your conscience because it's not in the doing of deeds and in ritual and in regulations and checking all the boxes on the envelopes that you become justified and acceptable to God. The Pharisees thought if we do more, God loves us more. There's nowhere in the Bible where God teaches that. And things haven't changed much. Rather than the body of Christ trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we try to do more. We try to get busier. We volunteer for one more thing, and sometimes it's because other people won't volunteer for anything. But that is not the motivation to find acceptance with God. That is what someone has called the poverty of activity. And some of us are busy, but we're not at peace inside. We're busy doing things for God, but we're not at peace inside. Verses 1 through 5, he's saying this was what they were told to do. There's nothing wrong with what they were told to do. All these rituals and these offerings and the Holy of Holies and the priests going in, they were doing exactly what God said they were to do. And he didn't say that the worship in the tabernacle was wrong, verses 6 through 10. What he's doing is he's saying God authorized that, but he authorized it for a season until the complete sacrifice showed up, which was Jesus Christ. And so let's look at the problem. Number one, the worshipers in the Old Testament didn't see beyond the ordinances. That little phrase in the text, which cannot perfect the conscience. The rituals never touch the conscience. Why? What we read in chapter 10. You've got to keep doing it day after day, year after year, week after week, month after month, over and over and over again. You gotta keep, and I want to tell you, there are mainline denominations in America that people believe they're going to heaven because they go burn candles or say prayers or do certain things or repeat these phrases or say this creed or do this ritual and there's nowhere in the Bible that says that saves you. Nowhere. They're good people. They're religious people. They are sincere people. But they have fallen for a substitute instead of for the real substitute, Jesus Christ. They've fallen for ritual and going through the motion and kneeling down and praying and reading a creed and burning candles and all that stuff. They've gone to all of that thinking, this will make me clean before God. Nothing makes you clean before God but the blood of Jesus Christ. You cannot do enough. You cannot pray enough. You cannot work enough. You cannot beg enough. You cannot serve enough. You can't hold enough offices. If you could, then Paul could have been saved and never had to go on to the Damascus Road. You can't do it. You can't earn it. They didn't understand that rituals demand that you keep following them, and that is bondage. That's not freedom. Secondly, the ordinances and regulations had a deeper meaning. They were simply symbolic. Hebrews 10, verse 6, Christ takes no pleasure in burnt offerings and sin offerings. 
Thirdly, the outward religion never touches the conscience, the inner man. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, verse 8, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. Still standing literally says, and it's a better way if you read it literally, if the outer tabernacle still has any standing or still has any value. Do you see what he just said in verse 8? You can almost read over it and skip it. He says, the outer tabernacle, these rituals, these sacrifices, all this religious system that you're up to has no value. And the Holy Spirit is saying the way into the holy place of God, the way into the presence of God, the way into the Shekinah glory of God, the way into worship with God is not by coming and doing, it's by realizing that it is only by the grace of God that you get into His presence. Only because of His righteousness, not because of your righteousness. But David figured it out in Psalm 51, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, if you don't get anything else this morning, get this. Stop depending on your work to feel better about yourself. Depend on the finished work of Christ to feel right about yourself. Stop depending on your work, what you give, what you do, where you serve. Stop depending on your work to feel better about yourself. Start depending on the work of Christ to feel right about yourself. You see, God wants you to have some self-worth, but it's not self-worth built in, look at what all I do. It's self-worth that God loved you enough to save you and to change you that while you were a sinner, while your conscience accused you, while you were, your righteousness was as filthy rags, all that junk, all that baggage, he took it away at the cross. And Satan loves to accuse us. He loves to goad us. He loves to make us think that we have to earn God's favor, that we have to merit God's favor, that we have to do enough that one day God finally says, okay, you're in. But you'll never stack up. And so I want to ask you to stand, if you would, and I want you to read with me what is at the bottom of your notes from the Sunday School Times. This is an old statement. But I'd like to ask you to read this aloud with me, if you would. We'll read it slowly because I want this to sink in for us because when I read this, it was the most concise statement I could find about what we're supposed to be doing. And I may stop at a couple of points to try to make sure we get this, okay? Let's start reading. Scripture recognizes, as the accuser also does, that nothing so impedes your access to God as a guilty conscience. You cannot draw near boldly unless your heart is sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Therefore, if you want to overcome Satan at this point, don't just talk to him about the blood of Christ. Instead, accept the fact that the blood of Christ completely satisfies God about you. Remind yourself that God welcomed you into his presence, not on the grounds of your Christian progress, the depth of your knowledge, or even the degree of victory you have found, 
but on the grounds of the blood of the Lamb. The discovery of this glorious secret has enabled saints down the ages to overcome the accuser. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. They did not remind him of the blood of Christ. They reminded themselves. They refused to wilt before his accusations and were therefore able to enjoy free access to the throne of grace and full liberty in their service. Now somebody else say amen. I want you to look back at two sentences. And you ought to cut this out and put this in your Bible because sometime before this week is over, the devil's going to beat you up. Do you think he will? Anybody here think sometimes for this? Okay, so the devil's going to beat you up, so have this close at hand, all right? I want you to look at the uh, second paragraph. Remind yourself that God welcomes you into his presence, not on the grounds of your Christian progress, the depth of your knowledge, or even the degree of victory you have found, but on the grounds of the blood of the Lamb. remind myself the enemy has no power to accuse me the enemy has no right to make me feel guilty the enemy has no right to hold me in bondage because of the blood of Jesus now Michael remember that next time you start getting kicked around you remember that the next time you start getting kicked around that the enemy already knows it he just doesn't want you to know it and there's a whole lot of difference between knowing it up here and knowing it down here and getting it in your heart and believing there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God. And how's your conscience clean today? How do you stand cleansed before God? Not because you got up and came to church when other people took this week off for vacation. It doesn't have anything to do. God doesn't love you any more. doesn't love them any less. You stand clean before God because of one thing. One day you realize that apart from Jesus Christ, you had no hope. And on that day, at that moment, the blood of Jesus Christ covered all our sin. Our sin problem, our sin nature, and it dealt with us in how we deal with sins, plural, that we commit. So you stand clean before God, not on your righteousness, not on your deeds, but on the blood of Jesus. And we're going to do something a little different. Mark, we're just going to sing nothing but the blood of Jesus. So uh, I, I want you to just get, kind of put your Bible down and you kind of... Now, this is not for the Lord this morning, okay? This little song we're about to sing is not for the Lord. It's not for the devil. It's for you. It's for you to hear yourself singing this words. What can wash away my sin? Kind of stuttered through that one, didn't you? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole within? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You see, you can't add any value to your life that God hasn't already given your life through the blood of Jesus. 
So if you're here this morning and you're trying to do a lot of good works or you're thinking going to church is going to get you into heaven or you're thinking if I serve more or if I volunteer somewhere, that, that's going to make God love me more, I'm just going to tell you, that's a dead-end road. It's only the blood of Jesus is going to do that. So for those of you that have been saved, you ought to sing it with rejoicing. Some of you need to come down and you need to say to yourself and say to God in prayer, Lord, I'm tired of believing lies. I know that you've cleansed me by your blood. I'm going to accept it and stand on it. Some of you need to use these prayer altars. Some of you need to come this morning trusting Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, asking him to save you today. So let's sing it together. And staff's going to be here. You come right now. If you need to come publicly, you come. for joining us for Path to Truth. If you would like a copy of today's service, please send us your name and address to Path to Truth, 2201 Whispering Pines Road, Albany, Georgia, 31707. If you're requesting a videotape of the service, please enclose $10 with your order. If you would like an audio tape of the pastor's message, enclose $3 with your order. Remember to include your name and complete address along with your telephone number, and be sure to ask for the tape number that you see on the screen. We would enjoy hearing from you by mail or by phone. And we hope you'll join us next week at this time for Path to Truth from Sherwood Baptist Church.